0: Hello, how are your knees? How are the soles of your feet? If, like me, you went on the People's Vote March in London last Saturday, your feet are probably still throbbing. But it was all worth it for a fantastic day that was exactly what we all needed after the disappointment of the fake rebellion over the withdrawal bill. The quality banners... Down the Bog with Jake Reese mogg was a personal favourite. Romaniacs t-shirts were seen and there was a real sense of something big happening. We're going to have a bit of the march for you a bit later in the show so that you can bask in it like replays of Glastonbury or Highlights of England versus Panama. I'm Andrew Harrison, I'm your host for this week and here with me I have Ros Taylor, Research Manager of the LSE's Truth, Trust and Technology Commission here in a personal capacity as usual. Hello Ros. how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. You got a bit of the march in, didn't you? You got some marching done.
1: I did, I did half of it um, for various complex reasons. Reasons. Plus, I had two kids with me, but it was great. I uh, it was a lovely atmosphere, and there was a fantastic sense of solidarity. And when I came out of the tube at Charing Cross and looked up, and there were all these just it seemed like miles of banners. Yeah, I realised you know this might, this must be how you feel when you're a football fan and you turn up <laughs> the stadium. Um, it was just very exciting, and I saw a great banner, uh, which was Shropshire against Brexit. And you know it's weird how when you see something like that from the county where you come from. It somehow you feel an even greater sense of solidarity because it feels like yeah these are these are my people too my people uh, on the march my, yeah exactly yeah. so as a shout out to Shrewsbury and Shropshire against Brexit as
0: the voice of truth <laughs> trust and technology. Do you think it made the 100,000 that uh, the Guardian said, or was it perhaps a bit more?
1: Yeah, easily 100,000. It was in, It was a strange thing, actually, because um, there was an estimate of half a million, which the Met didn't deny. But it's difficult to yeah. say. I would say, I, no, I can't estimate these things. I would say it was in the north of 100,000, maybe a quarter of a million even.
0: Meanwhile, never let it be said that we don't listen to the listeners. Last week, Leaving Planet tweeted us, I'm not sure what Leaving Planet's real name is, but it's at Leaving Planet, tweeted us with the words, I'm happily married, but I'm slightly in love with Alex mm-hmm. I sort of suspect that most people who know him are. Get Alex back on. He should be a permanent fixture. <laughs> well, Leaving Planet, your wish is our EU directive Brussels diktat, because it is time to welcome Alex Andreo on board as a regular panellist
2: on Next. Welcome aboard, Alex. Yay. Happy
1: to have you here. How are
2: you doing? I'm very well, thank you for having me. Um, we'll be having you very often, I am Delighted heard. to be stealing this job from a Brit.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Coming over here, taking our podcasts. This is just like when they unveil a new member of Pants People, one, one for the younger listeners there. Yes, Haven't... I don't know why I'm wearing
2: lycra, though. This is just <laughs> an audio recording. It? It's, all, it's all part of the terms and conditions. So d- you didn't make it to the march yourself, did you? I didn't, no. I was... Uh, I was in between preview and press night of my operatic debut. What are you (laughs) you operatically debuting? Um, I am the speaking part of Pasha Selim in The Abduction from the Seraglio at the Grange Opera Festival. Never let
0: it be said we don't give you culture. Um, for for <laughs> listeners who don't know, Alex is an actor and political commentator. He is a Greek citizen living in London and he does the Lord's work tweeting as sturdy Alex at sturdy Alex. This week, Alex, you expended a lot of energy trying to prove that a photograph of a young Angela Merkel with Adolf Hitler wasn't actually a photo of a young Angela <laughs> Merkel with Adolf Hitler. Somebody believed yes. it, was
2: trying to pretend that this was the real well, thing. I didn't expend that much energy. I was <laughs> merely pointing out again and again that Angela Merkel wasn't born until 17 years after that photo was taken and meeting an impenetrable wall in, in response, saying, but she does look like Angela <laughs> Merkel, doesn't she? <laughs> See, that, that's just what mainstream history wants
0: you to think there, yes. Alex. Uh, also with us today, we have uh, another special guest. Molly Scott Cato is the Green MP for the southwest of England and Gibraltar. Uh, now, I thought this meant that she was representing the most Remain voting area, Gibraltar, which voted 95.9% to stay, with the heavily enthusiastic Leave region of the southwest, but it turns out I'm wrong aren't
3: I, Molly? I don't want to come on and straight away tell you that you're wrong, but yes, you're wrong. <laughs> Start um, you mean to go on. <laughs> exactly. No, the Southwest actually was pretty close to the national average, more or less 52, 48. So we mm. were for Leave, but only a bit. But you're right in thinking there were quite a few pretty Brexity areas like Swindon and Cornwall and other rural bits in Dorset and Devon. But they're sort of outweighed nearly by some of the cities which are very strongly for Remain. Mm. Why does
0: enthusiasm for Leave and kind of low-level xenophobia increase the more you get into the countryside and the further you get away from actual real life immigrants. Why that, does that, that happen? That is a,
3: a very bizarre thing. I think. I mean you, you can explain that in the sense that people that don't know what lovely people immigrants are to have as friends and how much they're contributing to the culture are more easy to, to turn with fear and you know negative messages I suppose but uh, I think also in rural areas people feel more isolated and left out of what's going on in the mainstream and that was also a kind of emotion that was used to turn them against the you, I think.
0: Mm. As the Greens uh, spokesperson on finance and Brexit, have you found it hard to make your headway with pro European arguments in those sort of agriculturally based areas? Do they want to hear them? or have they...
3: uh, Well, they've changed a lot since the vote happened. So, I mean, I was at an event at Duchy College in Cornwall and I had a chat with two female sheep farmers. Uh, you couldn't really think of somebody who's going to be more damaged by Brexit than not, not necessarily a female sheep farmer. But actually, yeah, women yeah. are losing more. Yeah. Sheep farmers, you know, are going to really face problems exporting. They're in Cornwall, so they're losing all that funding. And they really had just not understood how it would impact them. And they had two quite interesting reactions. One was why didn't you tell us this before? Which, of course, I was trying very hard to do. <laughs> and the other one was, will you come and teach at my college? So, you know, genuinely, I thought that was quite positive. But an awful lot of farmers throughout my region, but I think particularly in Cornwall, have decided they've made an awful mistake.
0: And the hardest thing is for people to admit when they've made an awful mistake.
3: Although, to be fair, both those women did fairly quickly yeah. admit that. Uh, but, you know, their, their businesses both built up, not, not from farming families, built up themselves, obviously will be destroyed if we're outside the single market.
0: We usually ask our, our guests this question last, but I'm going to ask you this first. As, as somebody who's very close to this stuff, what is your personal sense of the way the Brexit wind is blowing at the moment? Because two weeks ago, hard Brexit seemed doomed, and then there's a flop rebellion, and suddenly it's right back on the cards.
3: Look, I tweeted, I can't remember, about six months ago, shh, you can hear the tide turning. <laughs> and I, I really felt the tide started turning about then, and I, I think we're on a roll now. But that's us, right? That's, that's people. Yeah if you think about the people who are really going to win from this which i think is a tiny number of people and i think we're going to talk about you know the bad boys of brexit later on mm-hmm. they are betting a hell of a lot on making it happen and they're holding the prime minister hostage and you know my view is what we're doing trying to do is to struggle to get this back as a democratic decision for all of us because i'm i'm convinced if it went back to the people now they wouldn't they would you know they've changed their minds basically yeah. people are clear that it's not working out for most of us and it's just working in the interests of a tiny minority
0: well we'll be looking at that extraordinary Bloomberg story of how hedge funds made millions by shorting the pound on referendum night aided by a very convenient concession of defeat from Nigel Farage, who may have benefited personally. We're also going to look at Airbus and BMW's relocation plans plus the new low for Boris Johnson when he reveals the uh, the business strategy of the government in this direct quote Sorry to my mum for swearing, Boris's take on business was, fuck business We've also got Sajid Javid's plans for settled status for EU migrants Alex is going to have a lot to say about that I think, plus a surprising bit of EU legislation that could out ...outlaw well, memes from the internet. Best reason to stay in the EU ever. But first, we have an exciting announcement, Ros.
1: We're delighted to announce another Romaniacs live in London, and this time we've got a bigger venue. We will be appearing at the Leicester Square Theatre on Wednesday the 12th of September for at least 90 minutes, plus injury time, of live Brexit talk. The traditional poor quality Brexit jokes, exclusive merchandise, and probably Endunt Dunt losing his composure at least once during the show. <laughs> we may even sneak off for a drink with the audience afterwards. It's an all-star lineup: up me, uh, Ian, Naomi <laughs> Smith and Dorian Linsky. Tickets are on general sale now at leicestersquaretheatre.com and they're going fast. Of course, early bird access to tickets and a discount went to our beloved supporters on the crowdfunding platform, Patreon. And you can access that discount too if you become a Patreon backer now. You'll also get those sought-after Romaniacs T-shirts, EU-compliant Romaniacs mugs, and travel-friendly Romaniacs bags, plus that all-important sense of being on the bright side of history. Visit Patreon.com/RomaniacsCast to find out more. That's Romaniacs live at the Leicester Square Theatre, Wednesday the 12th of September. Tickets on sale now at LeicesterSquareTheatre.com.
0: Okay, before we get into the Brexit news, here is a little bit of what happened at the People's Vote March in London last Saturday. I went out with a microphone in moderate winds and spoke first to the Remain and Now group of people who voted Leave and have now changed their minds and came out on the march. I also spoke to some Romaniacs listeners and finally to Madalena Kaye, the infamous EU supergirl who campaigns on behalf of the EU in a supergirl outfit.
2: Well, I'm hoping for the government to actually finally take notice um, and obviously take notice of especially groups like us who may have voted Leave but are now unsure or now, want to remain. So, I think it's government that is important that really considers us and really considers the fact that the will of the people is a changing thing and it's not a serious something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I mean, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a changing game. People's opinions change and it's time to reflect that in government.
0: Yeah, okay, and it's a nice day as well. It's, like, it's got good feeling today, yeah. good vibes, sun,
3: massive turnout of people as well. I think one of the things for me is to is to rally even more people behind us. So, yes, we need to change the government's mind, but the, we stand more chance of doing that the more people that actually join in. So, regard, so you know, this march today is going to be brilliant, but if we can get more people behind us from this march, it's only going to get stronger and stronger, isn't it?
0: Well, to be fair, we are actually at the very back of the march. So we've got yeah. a lot of people... That, we haven't got many people behind us, but we've got a hell of a lot of people in front of us.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot it's of people it's joining big.
2: in.
1: I it's it's a a a made to stop and think... And to, um, if we've got to come out, to do what the Conservatives said in the 2015 manifesto that is to protect our position in the customs union and also to stay in the EEA, which is what they said in the 2015 custom uh, manifesto. They are breaking that promise. I'd like them to stop it completely. And I would like them to stop it completely. Yes. I'd like oh, for you, Remain,
0: remain Labour's motion to get passed by as many constituency Labour parties so that we have a final vote on the Brexit
1: deal with one of the options being to remain.
0: OK, I'm just outside Downing Street with famous Alba White-Wolf Madelina. Are you having a good day?
1: it's amazing it's epic there's so many people it's been a bit crazy not knowing where things are and running around but there's so many people here and just the sense of like solidarity and positivity is just brilliant
0: after wednesday when we had setbacks this is probably what everybody needed isn't it really proper noise and enthusiasm
1: absolutely yeah i mean people on wednesday were despairing and, and i always just say no the negativity stop it we have to focus on the positives.
0: Yeah. So what do you think today? What are we are going to achieve from today? What do you think is going to come out of it?
1: I think people will be pepped up, um, you know, ready to keep on the good fight and, and to mobilise more support uh, for the People's Vote campaign. But also, I mean, one of the big things that we're trying to get here is publicity because we need to get our message out to the media, to the British people, get everyone on board behind the People's Vote.
0: That's what we want to hear. Now let's bring everybody down with the Brexit news. Let's start with that huge Bloomberg story about how hedge funds use private polling and a very handicap concession from Nigel Farage on Sky News to short the pound and make millions from the result. This is one of the murkiest stories of the referendum, and it hinges on the fact that before the result came in, the pound was at a six-month high against the dollar. But hedge funds used private exit polls predicting victory for leave to bet that the pound would fall, and it enabled them to make millions. Another Brexit donor, Crispin Odie, shorted sterling and moved his holdings into gold before the result he's estimated to have made £220 million in a few hours. Molly Scott Cato, you've, you've written to the Financial Conduct Authority about this, alleging market abuse. What, what exactly? What crimes have been may may have been committed here?
3: Yeah, that's quite difficult to know. Well, the first thing I did is I wrote something for the Guardian, trying <laughs> to get this into a mainstream audience understanding, really, because I think quite a few of us have known about this for six months or so. <laughs> Stories have been circulating, uh, uh, precisely about why Farage made that concession, and you know, people knew that actually he'd known that they'd won, and then he came out and said that they'd lost, and it was during that interval that um, you know his hedge fund mates basically were able to, to take positions on the pound knowing that his statement would cause it to rise and then it would fall drastically afterwards and by gambling against it they made a lot of money. £200 million in the case of Crispin Binodi, who said the morning's mouth is stuffed with gold in his gross way. <laughs> um, anyway... There are actually quite strict rules about what pollsters are allowed to do with that information. And, of course, this was quite an unusual situation with a referendum, so there wasn't an official exit poll. And that meant that private polling data was extremely valuable. And um, my understanding is that private pollsters are not allowed to sell that or give that information to um, specific groups of members of the public. And um, th- th- we're not quite clear, and that's exactly what I've asked the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, you know, have they broken these rules? And perhaps more importantly, because they are now taking very strong positions on a disorderly Brexit. And so in the case of Chris Binodi, he's got about half a billion riding on the, the collapse of the value of British companies, and he's also bet against the value of British government debt. So you can see now, if th- th- this is just one guy, if there's a whole load of them, they now have to make sure that the disorderly Brexit goes ahead, or they're going to lose their money. And so there's a nasty sense that the democratic process might be being held in hock to people who are basically just gambling.
0: In that Guardian piece, you made a very interesting point. You speculated, Ho-Ho, that one reason the Brexiters hate George Soros so much is that he made billions from Shorts in the band on Black Wednesday and they were just jealous. They well, thought it was a scam. It, they yeah, it's, pulled it's, off. it's
3: not so much that they're jealous. It's just, I mean, I'm quite intrigued by their fascination with him. And I started to think, oh, maybe that's just because actually, yeah, yeah, you know, maybe they're jealous or maybe they just want to know how he managed to get away with that. And they, they're actually learning a lot from what he did.
0: Ros, this is the same week that Carol Cadwallader won the Orwell Prize for her investigations into collusion, possible conclusions between Aaron Banks, Levy, you and the Russians. Do these financial revelations have implications for the referendum's legitimacy?
1: Um, I think they do. There was an interesting report out this week from the Electoral Commission, uh, which was talking about interference... Uh, possible foreign interference in the referendum a little bit but mostly about what needs to change they say in terms of election law and election spending to make referendums and elections fairer in an era where so much money can be spent in such a secretive way online. But one of the things that the Electoral Commission couldn't pronounce on because it's not, it hasn't got those powers and who has in, in the legislature that is, is to look at what is happening abroad and whether there is foreign interference in elections in Britain, which it seems increasingly clear there is, albeit in not entirely clear Mm. ways. And this is the real challenge. And this is why the Electoral Commission by itself can't really do much. It has to be the platforms that step up and act in this if we're going to make some progress and try and find out what on earth has been going on?
3: So there's well, there's quite a lot of things here. I mean there is a lot of information out there we can assume but it's been collected by the secret services and so it's not in the public domain. So the Russian collusion in the United States is being investigated by the FBI but we don't have an equivalent of that really. So we can assume that the security services have that information. I've written to Sajid Javid asking him to let us know what he's read in their reports and I've also written to the National Crime Agency which is probably the closest thing we have to the FBI. We had Claire Bassett, the boss of the um, Electoral Commission, in front of a committee in Brussels this week, because Brussels is carrying out quite a lot of investigations into this. And the the Civil Affairs Committee there is chaired by Claude Morris, who's a British MEP, and he's really active and trying to pin down what's gone on. Anyway, Claire Bassett said uh, some interesting things, one of which was, well, we know the Vote Leave report um, is now out with various people who've been named in it, and they're... Um, basically presumably using their lawyers to try and kind of suppress mm-hmm. it. But anyway, that that's on its way. And we can assume that there's some pretty strong criticism there because that's why, you know, it's, there's been these pre-leaks going on. But the other thing to say is that the EU is quite active in this space around disinformation and the British Commissioner, who's called Julian King, I had a meeting with him recently and he's got some very strong proposals around what should happen with Facebook and Google and the other platforms and that's voluntary for six months but if they don't get their house in order then we will be looking to regulate. Obviously the problem there is you don't want to invade freedom of speech but we've reached a point now where you know the need for freedom of speech is sort of conflicting with the need to have a functioning democracy and so there needs to be some regulation I think.
0: There is a fantastic um, EU disinformation watch page on Facebook uh, put together mm-hmm. by the EU, which is brilliant at, um, you know, dispelling, uh, you know, fake news, false ideas. And if you are listening to this podcast, you should definitely follow it because it's, uh, it's, it's also a great argument, uh, <laughs> argument ammunition. Alex, a steady criticism of the EU on the left is that, you know, it's a financiers club, it's a bosses club. This revelation is surely some kind of... That, that's kind of ammunition to that position, isn't it? That Brexit...
2: Can I can yeah. I make a large brackets here? Yes. Um, before I go on to that, because I need, I need to explain something which I researched for an article a couple of years ago and I found quite startling. Okay. As recently as 1975, roughly 80% of foreign exchange transactions involved the real trade. Mm-hmm. So it was someone buying you know, a a barrel of oil in dollars and paying for it in pounds. By 1997, the percentage of foreign exchange which involved transactions in the real economy was 2.5%. By 2011, it's only 0.6% of foreign exchange can be traced to genuine cross-border trade. The rest of it is basically currency speculation. Right. So what I'm saying is that you have this behemoth of an industry um, and we believe fallaciously, I think, that everyone is working towards economic stability, but we're not. There is a large bit of the economy that depends on instability. Right. It's peaks and troughs that make money. Steady as she goes is of no interest to currency speculators. Mm-hmm. And so what you have is the the largest chunk of the economy that needs stability, certainty, and then you have this growing leech on its back that depends on actual chaos, yeah. because that's where they make their money. Which makes it a difficult thing to combat. Yeah, because we're not all pulling in the same direction. I think that's that's something that people have to understand. We're not, We don't all want a stable economy there are people who want an unstable economy because they make vast sums of money out of it. Im- and this is a prime <laughs> example of it's it. It's
3: important to say as well that the EU has specifically been trying to crack down on that kind of uh, speculative yeah. activity. So so there are short-selling regulations and also the euro in its in itself yeah. was a project to try and stop that currency speculation by bringing all the economies into the same currency and particularly to stop speculative attack on the weaker currencies. Yeah, in, in the, the Greek
2: e- crisis was a, you know, was a prime example, to, w- mm. to, which brings me back to... Your your question. Um, So look, the left has, I think, good reason to be unhappy with the political direction of the EU. It's increasingly a fiscal entity, it's drifting to the right. But this is a fair reflection of the mean average of European politics right now. There has been a shift to neoliberalism. There has been a drift to the right. What is a fallacy is believing that removing a layer of it will somehow insulate you and make you a socialist utopia when, in fact, you live in a country that historically is to the right yeah. of the mean average of European politics, to which the EU has acted as a sort of centrist anchor. Don't say so, so centrist, it'll make them angry. Well, <laughs> I, I don't care, frankly. But the point is, if, if by breaking free you actually empower the right of the right yeah. you know the, the really the worst element and give them the reins to choose the sort of brexit they want it's completely counterproductive yeah I to think it's to a, say that as the left, I support that.
3: It's a really important point that the reason the EU is drifting to the right is that the people that were elected both into the parliament where I sit and into the governments that then send people to the Council of Ministers are more to the right than they were. The right. so yeah. you, it's a completely it, it's fair a, reflection. Yeah, it's a democratic <laughs> entity, you yes. know, and so it must reflect the way people vote, unfortunately. Yeah.
2: So, so if you want to change European politics is what I'm saying. You, you change your local politics, you change your national politics. That's what filters through. You don't just go, oh, we'll dump this layer and then we'll dump that layer and end up actually with a more right wing government than you had before being constrained by, you know, social legislation, by employment rights, by, you know, all these things that act really as socialist anchors. Yeah. It's,
3: it's illogical anyway because I mean imagine you know your hospital's been um, sold off through some PFI deal and it's not working as well as it did and so you decide to vote to leave Devon County Council or something that's ridiculous is that
0: yeah okay well, I'm sure we're going to be returning to this one hopefully we'll be returning to it a lot <laughs> as Molly digs into it and uh, finds where uh, where all the dirty little secrets are moving on in sunny Uplands news it's been a great week for Britain with Airbus warning it would have to pull out of the UK in the event of a no deal Brexit potentially costing Britain 14,000 jobs and BMW which employs 8,000 people issuing a coded warning that uncertainty could damage the competitiveness of the UK's automotive industry translation get your act together amid government squabbles and intimidation towards these uppity companies Boris Johnson topped it all by revealing in a supposedly unguarded moment the new business policy of the party of business which is fuck business he was really talking about donors, is what Tory MP Robert Halfon was wheeled out to say. But when the FT is saying the Tories have ruined their business credentials, you know that something has happened. Ros, two companies being told to shut up by the government and the foreign secretary saying fuck business. Is this just a case of the twilight of the party of business?
1: Um, no, I don't think it is, actually. Um, I think it's merely desperation on the part of the Brexiteers. I think I think the uh, Conservatives are still, still deeply care about business and are very, very worried, and that is why this fear spills over into fuck business. Uh, it's frustration, basically. But the question is whether this will end up being good for Theresa May uh, if, as a lot of people suspect, she is actually going to try and push us towards single market membership and customs union membership. Because there is a there is a school of thought that says that, as the economic reality emerges and we've been having a lot of bad economic news this week, as that emerges, it will just become impossible for the far for the, for the brexiteers to keep up this fiction anymore, and she will be able to push a softer brexit through mm. so I'm hoping that that is the case I'm not hundred <laughs> percent we're all hoping <laughs> yeah. yes, it is
0: yeah. Alex, I mean, there seems to be no genuinely unguarded moments with Boris Johnson. Everything has a reason behind it. What is he trying to achieve by this?
2: I think if you carefully construct a buffoon persona, it gives you license to act with impunity outside ordinary decency. Hmm. Um, Nothing is accidental. By saying, fuck business, he grabs the spotlight so he can come out in two days' time and say, no, really, I love business. Of course I love business. In effect, what he's saying with everything he does is I'm honest and authentic, which he knows plays well. But I think he's about as honest and authentic as a Prada bag bought for five from the, <laughs> the back of a van in Romford frankly <laughs> don't knock Romford um, I'm not <laughs> knocking
0: Romford
3: this is also though an authoritarian communication technique isn't it the of big, course the it big lie technique of course and to, li- to deliberately destabilize people yeah. so they don't know where the truth really is and also misdirection it's another tactic that he uses a lot
2: because you say something truly awful and then two days later you say something slightly less awful only in comparison to the truly awful thing you said, basically. So you create space for yourself. Yeah, Molly,
0: the Greens have traditionally been uh, the party of um, throwing the... You know, Casting that net wide on future business ideas of innovative thinking, some would say, of uh, magical and dream thinking. Do you ever think that you would see the day when the Greens had a sounder uh, economic policy than the Conservative Party in the, in the common eye, in the Who popular eye? Who would
3: say magical and dream thinking? I, <laughs> I, I've, I've been to Frankfurt and I know that the magic money tree actually sits outside the ECB. It's a, you met, it's a metal sculpture there. <laughs> yeah. um, So, well, I tell you what was a little bit strange was sort of somewhere into the Brexit process, maybe about six months in, when businesses had given up on the Conservatives, they did start knocking at my door. I mean, I I had a lot of conversations with Honda, went to see JP Morgan you know I didn't sort of go into politics to look after the car industry and the banks but that's actually they've turned to me simply because they've been totally abandoned by the conservatives it's really extraordinary I mean we have some of course we've got Airbus also in my patch and uh yeah I mean obviously I'm an economist so when they explain to me that the issues they've got with rules of origin and you know how, how their supply chains work and so on they, they find a, a sort of willing ear and somebody who understands what they're saying so m- maybe maybe that's why they kept coming back but also you know I think yeah I think they were just completely panicking about the complete absence of support from the two main parties who were both driven by internal party concerns and just ignoring what's happening out there in the world.
0: We're seeing the Tory party talk, serially torch every aspect of Toryism. The, you know, the, the party of business is the last bit to go after you know, sound stewardship of the economy and, and trust
3: but let's not think this is all the Tories. I mean, nobody is more furious about what the extreme Brexiteers are doing to their party than the genuine Tories. I mm. mean, on the march last week, we had a, a banner f- with MEPs standing behind it. We have three Conservatives who, who came to the march and stood there proudly saying mm. that as Conservative MEPs, that, you know, they want to have the people's vote because they are, are just as distraught by what Brexit's doing to business and also mm. what Brexit's doing to their party, mm. uh, you know, as, as anybody
0: well, I mean, that's that's my question. What future is there for a Conservative Party that's managed to throw away almost all of the key tenets of the Conservative Party's,
2: you know, being um, Every possible future. Hmm? Um, th- they may find themselves in neutral gear, able to go in any direction at any speed. The question is, while they're doing all this, why is the Labour Party seven points behind in the polls? And your answer to that is? I have no idea. <laughs> Do you know frankly? what? Somebody said after. Because-
3: to- After David Cameron resigned, the day after, you know, the complete fiasco of the referendum and him calling it, and, you know, he he just basically ran away, Um, the the next poll showed that the Tories had increased their support. And somebody said to me, well, you know, voting Tories, just like buying gold, isn't it? There's a crisis. You choose the Tories. I mean, it's tragic, but it's true. People think that the Tories are more reliable. Incredibly, even now, people, as the the situation gets more critical, they turn more to the Tories than to Labour.
2: Even though it's a crisis that the Conservatives have actually created but is, but it's a sort of reset button for them so no. i don't I, I genuinely don't think they mind they they 've just pressed the reset button, and there's no one in opposition to make them pay for it mm. i I mean I fantasize occasionally about someone leading labor right now that is even two percent more. Business-friendly, you know, and what donations would be pouring yeah. into the Labour coffers at this very moment? <laughs> but we don't even
3: need to fantasise. So we could imagine yeah. Ed Miliband was the leader of Labour. Yeah. You know that we'd have stopped Brexit, and Labour would be the government by yeah. now.
1: Yeah, I mean the the problem is ultimately that Jeremy Corbyn's appeal is powerful, but to a very small proportion of the electorate. Yeah.
3: And also that he's a Eurosceptic. I and think. also,
1: well, well that's a problem. Yeah. yeah, no, I I agree with that too. But I mean, in terms of why Labour aren't clearing up cleaning up at the polls, yeah.
0: Molly, special points to Boris Johnson for disappearing for the Heathrow vote.
3: Oh, yes, we rather enjoyed that. We we sort of got the uh, Where's Boris hashtag going for a while, didn't we? Um, I wasn't really convinced. I thought there was quite an interesting report by um, James Landale on the BBC where he said he's been given a, he's been, gi- I think it was, uh, he's been given a ride in a, a military truck and taken to see some Afghan girls. And I thought the way he put that was really quite, <laughs> oh, quite telling. But I think I think that was actually, you know, James Landale himself implying something <laughs> like that. Like, this, this was not an essential state visit. It was no. a way for... Boris Johnson to go away and hide and shirk his responsibilities.
2: And I think everyone knows
0: it, yeah. frankly. Yeah. OK, let's move on and talk about this settled status thing. Uh, the status of EU citizens living in the UK has been a source of much anguish ever since the Brexit vote. Last week, Home Secretary Sajid Javid finally published the government's proposals, and at first glance, they seem to be not all that bad. EU citizens will be asked to provide their ID, show they ha- show if they have any serious convictions for per- serious and persistent criminality, and to say whether they actually live in the UK. Applications will cost £65, and Javid said the government's default position will be to grant, not refuse, settled status. Best of all, it will operate online and through a mobile app, which is great news because government IT projects always work first time and never, <laughs> ever. Go over cost. Whether it's good or bad is perhaps best explained by a foaming Daily Mail front page, Is There Any Other Kind? which raged 3.8 million EU migrants are allowed to stay here after Brexit and they can bring their families, which is fine by us. Alexandreo, as a Greek citizen in the UK, are you saying, not as bad as I thought, or it's a start, or screw you when your border app's on the phone, I'm staying? What's your response?
2: You know, last time you had me on, I explained how um, my reaction. Under the current system, was to not apply, but actually to simply leave this country, and uh, and I set myself a sort of three tests. Everyone seems to have three tests at the moment; <laughs> it's very fashionable. Uh, about what would convince me to uh, stay, and I, and and what I said is that it has to be an easy, cheap, and respectful process. And I think on paper this passes that test. Mm. We will still be at the mercy of the Home Office with everything that entails, and I don't think I need to say much about it after the windrush stuff that's been in the news. And so I would very, very strongly feel protected if the European Court of Justice stayed involved in some arbiter capacity over the process, Mm -hmm. Um, but... Like I said, on paper, it looks as if it's going to be a simple, cheap, and respectful process that doesn't effectively ask me to um to prove my worth to the country in some you know to a country yeah. that I've lived in for thirty years in some way, which was my objection, yeah. the first time round yeah i mean there is emotionally it's very, very different yeah you know i feel like I feel like my my three decade love affair with the UK is over, uh, and and now we're just arguing about who gets to keep the CDs. Um, <laughs> and but our listeners want to keep you, Alex. They texted and they tweeted. The live affair is still on, at least with our listeners. Yes, but you know, I, I think people who voted Remain also need to take responsibility for the collective result. Mm. You know that that's how democracy works. Mm-hmm. All all of the you know all of the things we've mentioned aside about you know the the money that went into it and the things that may have affected the vote um i think the 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 result was still what it was and i think people need to take responsibility and that's why uh, that's why actually i actually support a people's vote rather than a, a, a rules based process that declares the referendum null, null and void i think that's counterproductive i think it has to be the people who express freely and clearly that we've changed our mind, this is a mistake, we would like you to stay, we would like to stay within the European Union. I think that needs to be said loud and clear, and it's the only way to pedal back from the situation we find ourselves in. Mm -hmm. Molly, what's the Greens' reaction to the settled statements proposals?
3: Well, I wanted to start by saying I think that's a really great way to put it, you know, and I I think you're completely right. You know, the British people as a whole have to realise this is a mistake and we have to vote for something different. And I think one of the things people underestimated when they voted Leave was how much hurt that was causing to people in our own community. And to be honest, the government could have got to the place they are now without all the heartache of the past two years and all the uncertainty Mm. to the European... Of course, we're European citizens as well, but the non UK European citizens who've been living amongst us for for so many years. Um, I tend to agree, you know, looking at the technicalities, it looks like a a, a pretty good arrangement, much better than we've been led to expect previously. Actually, the night, the the day it was announced, I travelled back to Bristol and I bumped into Nicholas Hatton from the Three Million on the train and, you know, we shared a taxi back to that sort of Romania um, (laughs) paradise that is the west of Bristol. Um, And yeah, I would say that, that they're reasonably satisfied. But just as Alex said, I mean, that the main concern here is that you can have whatever you like written in a policy, but if you move in, in, you know, let's imagine after Brexit there's a real hit on the economy, which I think we're all expecting, yeah. then we, 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 you know, people are saying, well, that person's taking my job exactly. you know, the hostile environment increases exactly. um, mm. and, you know, if you're depending on the guarantees of Sajid Javid, you're in a, a fairly vulnerable place, to be honest. So I know that the three million are trying to negotiate some kind of specific legal protocol that will have force in international law and my own view is that, that you should stick out for protection from the European Court of Justice. I think that's a ridiculous red line that that the Prime Minister can't defend. And Mm. if I was a a non-U... Well, I mean, you know, if only I was a non-UK EU (laughs) citizen at the moment. But, you know, if I were in your position, I would certainly not want to rely on guarantees from the British government at the moment. Yeah.
0: In cock-up news, iPhone users won't be able to use the app uh, and they'll have to send their passports in, which I would feel great about sending my passport in under these circumstances. And two Welsh Labour MPs were sent letters by Sajid Javid advising them on how not to get deported after Brexit. So are we getting rid of Wales? We're getting rid of Welsh MPs. They're going to have to prove their, their presence. As symbolism goes, it's not quite, not very good for the Brexiters, though, is it? This, this, this is pretty much giving what we hoped would be given as an option to EU citizens.
1: Yeah, it's... As good as I might have hoped for. There are still some problems, clearly. The fact that immigration is going an executive power and that you can bring in all kinds of tweaks and changes to immigration at will. Theresa May made many, many, many changes when she was Home Secretary. And as you say, the hostile environment may lead to further changes. There may be restrictions potentially on whether EU citizens can, get, can apply for the same kinds of jobs, can have equal status with UK citizens when it comes to applying for jobs. But that's all in the future. For the moment it's indefinite leave to remain which is basically what settled status amounts to is better than we thought it might have been
0: yeah okay before we move on one weird little story about EU copyright directive article 13.1 you know the one we all know that one don't we (laughs) it's everybody's favorite Wired magazine reports that EU copyright directive article 13.1 could force online platforms like Facebook reddit and even 4chan to censor their users content before it even gets online Uh, The directive instructs platforms to use content recognition systems to scan material before it goes up, automatically blocking copyrighted pictures, video or audio. That means no more grabbing a picture from Google Images to illustrate your tweet or your Facebook post, and it means no more memes. In practice, this would be no more condescending Willy Wonka saying, tell me again about the Brexit dividend. Certain seasoned internet campaigners say it will transform the internet from an open platform for sharing and innovation into a tool for the automated surveillance and control of its users. Molly. You're part of the Brussels super state. This is not a good (laughs) look for the EU, is it?
3: No, this is the sort of (laughs) policy I really love because it's (laughs) extremely detailed and very technical and all relates to techie, you know, computery stuff that I don't understand very well. But I have to say that we're very blessed as a green group in the European Parliament because we have the only pirate in the whole of the Parliament sitting in our group, who's called Julia Rader. She got in on less than 1% of the vote from Germany and she's absolutely fabulous because she understands all this stuff and she sits very near me. I thought you meant
0: an actual pirate Uh, from the west of of England. Well, that
3: would be fun. (laughs) But but actually, no <laughs> <The laughs>
0: Aras <Arrows> Habits, yes.
3: <laughs> no, so she's from the German pirate party. So basically, the way I understand this is... Because we've been lobbied very heavily, thousands of emails coming to me from both sides, actually. So you have explained why it's an issue in terms of the freedom of the Internet, and that's basically where Yulia's coming from. Mm. Um, but I think it's, it does help also to see this as a sort of battle between two types of corporations. It's a bit problematic for us as, as Greens because we, we're generally critical of corporations, and we're sort of caught in the middle here. So on the one hand, you've got, like, Google, for example, as the biggest example, that trades a lot on free information they haven't paid for, sharing the article I wrote yesterday in The Guardian, for example... <laughs> <laughs> um, you know and so so we all love that but on the other hand nobody's paying people to write stuff mm-hmm. or actually to produce music as well and then on the other hand you've got the kind of platforms like Springer the big German publisher or um, you know uh, Time Warner or whoever and they want to control the value of the product now they are getting the creatives to write to me to say oh you know you must Pass Article 13 and Article 11, which are the crucial bits, because I want my creative artists to be protected. But the reality is most of that value will still stay with the platform or the, the corporation that owns the artist rather than the artists themselves. And although mm. there's something in the law that says the artist can go and take on the publisher or music publisher or whoever, you know, that's actually quite a tricky thing to do. So our own view is we do need to protect the value of creative artists but, and, we, and we don't have a model for that in the internet age yet, but until that model's there, we should keep the freedom of the internet. Mm. I think I explained that, didn't I?
0: Yes, actually, that was a good, a good rehearsal <laughs> of both sides of the argument. Alex, you spent too much time on the, on the internet <laughs> arguing with people who've got made-up pictures of Hitler and who think that a meme wins an argument. We,
2: we should be protecting memes, shouldn't we? They're a new language. Um, yes, I, I, like, I like them, I use them, but at the same time, as as someone who's got one foot in the creative... Arts space. I also understand the frustration. You know, you know that figure of a dog with a cup of tea in a burning room. Yes. Um, I mean that that is now as well known visually as the Mona Lisa. Does mm-hmm. anyone in this room know who drew that? No. Well, I think that's fundamentally unfair. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. we need to find a, a way and an etiquette of crediting people. I think that would solve a lot of the problems. Presumably. Well, I,
3: I agree that crediting is important and actually paying creative people rather than the platforms yeah. taking the money is really important as well. So if you have a creative commons license on your output then these um, provisions these articles don't apply to you. But also, but, but people who create cartoons or music or whatever, they also need to make a living yeah. and at the moment there isn't a model allowing them to do that. And so I think I think that's where the EU is, is let's not say so falling down, but he hasn't quite got there yet because the internet's still quite new for everybody. And be recognised
2: for their work, you know. Yeah, that's yeah.
3: That's really
2: important.
3: Yeah, you know the guy who took that amazing picture of Che Guevara that's on every student wall? Hmm. He didn't make any claim on the copyright for that because basically he was delighted. He, he supported hmm. the yeah. communists in Cuba and he was delighted it was travelling everywhere. But then at some point Coca-Cola used it in an advert and at that point he said, that's mine, you can't use it. And yes, he won that case.
2: absolutely right. Hmm. Absolutely right.
0: Raz, do you think that, uh, you know, um, this is a a, a case where... You actually could say this is an over-regulating EU-regulating something that doesn't fully need regulating. Molly's just made a very good case for a nuanced response, though. What do you think?
1: Clearly, are good. it's a very good thing that uh, if, if we can ensure that creatives get paid for what they do. But in terms of what the EU should be doing, in terms of what the EU's priorities are at the moment, no, right. absolutely not. Um, if we to think about even online and the problem of disinformation and misinformation... These are more urgent problems than in issues of individual copyright. I think that we have almost privileged the rights of individuals and business to uh, in, in, in law over a more a wider look at what the Internet is doing to our society, because that's what the law is good at. It's good at upholding the interests of individuals. It's good at upholding the interests of corporations and those who can afford to enforce it. And we've lost sight of the bigger things going on. And I think there will be a huge amount of resentment and criticism if the EU takes this forward and does implement it because it will fall into the bent banana category. <laughs> can
3: I can I quickly say something in yep. defence
1: of what the EU is trying to do? Because the
3: EU is very active actually in that space of trying to control disinformation, but yeah. it's, it's actually very difficult yeah. because you're trying to take on these massive corporations, oh. most of which are based outside the EU. Um, I do think we, I mean, of course the pirates are for a, a, a utopian, wonderful, free, open internet, you know, where everybody can just, I, I see it as like Hansel and Gretel, you know, <laughs> trotting around in the forest and everybody's fine, mm-hmm. but there's wolves in the forest. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I can't say that because George Mumby always has a go at me for saying wolves are nasty things. <laughs> yeah, so let's think of a nasty, wolves. vicious yeah. creature that isn't a wolf that might be living in that forest. But, you know, so so we do need to have some control, not only in terms of making sure that the right people get the value of their creative products, but also because, you know, Putin and his friends are there deliberately creating misinformation and undermining our democracies. But just to say the Greens' position is absolutely with the pirates in this. We have some people that are, are not voting like that, but when we debated this in our group meeting, we decided we'd challenge the mandate coming from jury because at the moment it's been it's been passed in the legal affairs committee Mm. by quite a narrow margin and the the debate this week will be about whether it needs to go to the whole parliament whether we all get a vote on it and greens are the people leading the campaign to see to say we need to debate this further and the whole parliament should decide I, i think we'll win that although it's kind of quite slim at the moment
0: This week's show is brought to you with the support of Everymatic.com, the boutique travel concierge that everybody can use. Everymatic are a small family company based in Athens and they put together brilliant bespoke Greek holidays to suit exactly what you want. And they can work with any budget, because boutique travel shouldn't just be for footballers and oligarchs and podcast barons like us. I've been using Everymatic for years, and Alex and Stevie from the company have helped me to discover wonderful parts of Greece that I'd never have thought to go to before. If you don't have this year's holiday sorted out yet, Greece is definitely the place to go, and if you're not time, to school term time, here's a pro tip go in early September when the kids have gone back, the flights are cheaper, and the beaches are a lot less crowded. Alexandreo, as a proud son of Mykonos, where in Greece
2: should the open minded Romaniac be visiting this year? Um, Look, obviously, as a son of Mykonos, I have to say Mykonos. (laughs) I mean, there's a reason why Mykonos is crowded and expensive. It's because it's exceptionally lovely. And it has a pretty long season. So you can go at the end of September, beginning of October, when it's a little less crowded and much cheaper. Mm -hmm. Um, But the part of Greece I've fallen in love with recently is the Peloponnese. Um, There are quite a few uh, companies that fly directly to Kalamata, Now And there is a a sort of lace of villages by the sea all around the peninsula um, with beautiful beaches. And then in the center, there is proper forest and mountain. The archaeological sites are unparalleled. You you have Olympia, you have Epithavros, you have Mycenae. Um, And the food is also exceptional because they basically have access to any a product you can imagine, fish, fowl, or vegetable within a sort of five mile radius so yeah. nothing travels far everything is incredibly fresh and I have never had meals like I had in the Peloponnese Well we went to Mani a few years ago and the fish tavernas blew my
0: mind so it's,
2: a, it's incredible isn't
0: it So take advantage of your freedom of movement while you've got it and see Greece with Everymatic Email them at alex at everymatic.com, that's Alex in Athens not Alex here in the studio, and tell her that Romaniacs sent you, she'll sort you out with an unforgettable holiday that's boutique. Unique and Greek.
2: That's my motto.
0: <laughs> As you've been hearing, our special guest today is Molly Scott Cato, Green MEP for South West England and Gibraltar. For those who abide on the rock, she salutes you. Um, Molly, is it fun being an MEP? Is it, is it fun being an MEP now?
3: Oh, God, you know what? Being an MEP is like my dream job. It's an absolutely fantastic job. You you know, you're in a multilingual, kind of multicultural environment all the time. You have to learn other languages. You're speaking to people from different cultures. It's absolutely fantastic. And you get really strong engagement in your legislative work as well. So I was previously a professor of economics. So, you know, I really love getting my teeth into the detail work on tax. I mean, I do. I really love it. And uh, as an MP, you just don't get that much. Well, you don't really get a chance to do that. We actually make the legislation in the parliament. The downside is, as you'll see sitting next to me, I have a, a suitcase surgically attached to my hands <laughs> since I became an MEP. And the logistics is really, plus the professional eating, those are the downsides. Oh,
0: poor you, professional eating. It's
3: no fun at all. I'm, I'm having egg and chips tonight and I'm really looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so as a, as, a, as a green MEP, presumably it's a lot of Eurostar and not, not a lot of flying.
3: You're right. I took a pledge not to fly, or rather to fly once during the whole mandate, and I've stuck to that. And I went to Latin America last October. The problem was I went during the hurricane season, so I had to fly through all the hurricanes. And then I went to Mexico three days after the earthquake. So I thought, you know, I didn't exactly choose the best time for my flight. But so far, I have yeah. stuck to that. I've, I've been to Latvia on a sort of ferry full of sweaty Russian drivers. I've spent twenty four <laughs> hours travelling by train. I know all the sleeper <laughs> trains of Europe. Actually it's really good fun travelling that way. I enjoy it. But it is a bit tiring sometimes. So. Uh, grown up interrailing. Hmm. So exactly. what what are your what are
0: your Green colleagues in the Parliament from the rest of Europe? What are they saying about Britain's direction on Brexit? Because I mean we, here we tend to think Brexit is the biggest thing going. Is that reflected in what your European colleagues think?
3: Look the day I got back after the vote, um I was just you know, incredibly depressed as you can imagine, trudging across the Esplanade there into the Parliament. And a French guy that works for one of the MEPs just sort of saw me and he shouted across, Welcome home and it makes me tearful now thinking about that because you know the extraordinary compassion and support we've had from the other MEPs is just it's really kept us going and there's been no attempt to to sort of take power away from us or to remove us from committees like Claude Still the the Mm. chair of the LIBE committee. I think this is incredibly open minded of them actually. Um, But of course they know that we are what they would call a true European, you know, and that's the greatest accolade you can have um, in European policy circles. And so, you know, we've been allowed to carry on. And to be honest, they value British MEPs in terms of our policy-making abilities, and so that they've wanted us to carry on with the work we've been doing.
0: Mm. Why did why have Britain's politicians and institutions made such a catastrophically bad job of explaining how European democracy works? We've had terrible turnouts always mm. in the elections widespread misunderstanding of how
3: the institutions work. How has it got that bad? Well, I think there's two culprits there, the media and the politicians themselves. So the politicians themselves, and this is true of all politicians is not just a British thing. If something's going well, they claim the credit. If something's going badly, they blame Brussels. And, you know, they've all done that with fisheries, for example. I mean, they all sit there in the council meeting and they all agree on fisheries. And then when their fishermen complain at them, they say blame Brussels, although loads of those decisions are made in national capitals. And you could say that about any policy area. And by doing that, they have jointly undermined the European project, I think. And then on the media side, I mean, there's just been a complete you know, lack of engagement, lack of interest—it's extraordinary. You know, we have yesterday in Parliament, we don't have yesterday in the European Parliament. Although everybody agrees, a large number of our laws have, have come from Europe, so people simply don't know what people like me do. Yeah. And in the referendum campaign itself, there seemed to be—I think there was—a decision taken at the BBC to just not have MEPs. There was a kind of sense, you know, oh well, you're just Europe, just about the gravy train. We won't listen to what you've got to say. But that meant that people arguing against Europe knew how it knew how it worked, as they were engaged there as UKIP MEPs. Well, they were there anyway. But whatever they were doing, but the people arguing for it were actually very ignorant about how it worked, so couldn't make a strong argument for it. So, you know, I think that was... What it, however that decision was made, it was a really bad decision.
0: Mm. Um, as Green Finance and Brexit spokesperson, you've been campaigning hard to keep Britain in the customs union. It still baffles me that supposedly free trade anti-regulation conservatives are so implacably opposed to this system which keeps regulation and red tape at a minimum. It's it's inviting the reintroduction of immensely costly trade barriers with yeah. our closest neighbours.
3: But but we're talking about people who don't want to carry on having that close relationship with Europe, they want to now switch our attention to whether it's Saudi Arabia or Japan or US, whatever they mean by global Britain because they've never said, but the kind of future vision they have for a sort of free Britain, free booting trading across the world, that isn't possible if you keep the the common external tariff which you must do to stay in the customs union so that that is a choice depending on where you see our our future lying, but the problem is firstly they haven't explained at all what will replace the EU trade and secondly EU trade is what most British business Depend on because we've been part of this single market for forty years now, so our our whole economy is completely entwined with theirs. And so, you know, okay, you, you could say, well, I, I want to decide on a new trade policy, but it's it's obviously. Not sensible to do that. And, and you know, there's no plan for it at all. And actually, in March next year, all the trade deals that the EU's negotiated with other countries across the world, which all our exporters depend on to get their products out there, they will cease to apply to us. Fox sort of waves his arms around and says, you know, oh, well, they'll just roll over. But the, the countries he's asked said, no, yeah, we yeah. won't roll them over. So, mm-hmm. like the cheesemakers of Somerset, you know, who are really worried about this, they have no idea how they'll continue to export cheddar after March next year. There's just nothing in place.
0: Blessed, aren't the Blessed are
3: the cheesemakers. Blessed uh, are I, the cheesemakers.
2: I think it's a... You see, I think it's a reverse-engineered process almost because, to me, it goes so against the historical roots of Euroscepticism, mm. which were all about leaving the political bit but staying in the trading bit. I mean, the the common internal market was Margaret Thatcher's baby, for God's yeah. sake. and And so... The switch happened, I think, when they realised that there was no way they could get through that unless they tapped the anti-migrant sentiment. Mm -hmm. And so that meant, in consequence, that they had to knock out freedom of movement, which has then consequences for Britain's place in in the single market and the, the customs union. So I think it's been entirely a reverse engineered process that goes from how do we win this at whatever cost and then makes concessions to the disaster that's coming. Mm-hmm.
3: But I think one of the groups that were pushing very hard for Brexit were what I call the regulation burners, you know, on my bad boys website. And they're <laughs> actually a lot of them are actually all in a single house at 55 Tufton Street, just around the corner, somewhat ironically from Europe <laughs> House. Um, but, you know, th- th- that that's more single market than customs union. But again, it's about control. I mean, they, they absolutely don't want the single market because although that started out as an economic project, as you're saying, Greens, I think, have been particularly effective in making sure that the rules of the single market are actually now moving us in, for example, a di- direction of more sustainability. Yeah. So if you, if you have rules governing the market, then they become a political target. We've been quite effective at moving the whole structure so that we have higher standards of animal welfare or higher standards of, you know, pollution control or whatever it is, the highest standards in the world, in the single market, and then you've got 500 million people there. And so they can then put pressure on the rest of the world also to rise to those standards. And that's what I think works really well about the single market. But there's no point being part of that if you're not part of the political process of making sure those standards mm. are raised. Yeah. But of course, the Brexit people, they, they want to trash those standards, you know, that they, 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 they're climate change deniers, some of they don't them want do, to have energy and controls. some of
2: them don't, because... Because I think for me part of the problem is that there is no unified vision of what Brexit looks like. In in any camp yeah. actually. Um you, you ask sort of ten Brexiteers what they what mm-hmm. their ideal Brexit is, you're likely to get five different answers. You probably get and, twenty actually. And, and so and so you get you get a unifying of this mandate for what it means when actually it isn't unified you know we voted for uh, we voted to leave we didn't vote for a destination and i feel now like you know the the side that didn't want brexit is being shushed from having an input into the direction we go to for the next 20 30 50 years Mm. and that's not fair that's, you know, that's not democracy. That is the opposite of democracy. It's actually democratic centralism, which yeah. is a Stalinist concept, yeah. which <laughs> meant you you debate something. And once the decision is made, everyone shuts up forever. Mm-hmm. And that's the decision. Mm-hmm. Well, that's <laughs> very will of the people there. Alex. It is it's very democratic, will of the people, yeah, isn't it? Stalinism. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: democratic centralism, it's called. Mm. Molly, we've already... Barely touched on actual green policies in the, in the in the time we've been talking. Are the greens war gaming for what's likely to happen to environmental policy in the UK if we eventually do leave the EU? What are you looking at?
3: Well, obviously that was one of our focuses right from the start, and we've called for. Um, well, I would say there's two things: there's, there's the animal welfare side, and then there's the environmental law side. And so right from the start, we said that all the environmental law had to be brought across. But obviously that's not sufficient because bit like the hostile environment you know how do we know a future government won't renege so we need to have an environmental protection agency and a court attached so if if the laws are broken we can challenge the government in this country because if you think about air pollution we've always had to go to europe to challenge the british government which hasn't kept the the Mm. the law and so on and the other side was it was a big battle that was had in the house of commons and this was apparently the, the the most discussed on social media of all the debates over Brexit and that was around animal sentience which I think of as whether animals have feelings but that sounds a bit soppy so let's say whether animals can experience pain Mm. and uh, you know there was a huge amount of lobbying of MPs around that and we did in effect win both those battles in the debate but then there wasn't a majority for the amendments during the withdrawal process and then Oliver Letwin came through sort of at the last minute and said oh well you know I'll create this uh, environmental protection body but I'm you know a bit doubtful that we have got the protection we need. Of course, the precautionary principles are a really important part of this because at the moment in European law, you know that's in, enshrined in the basic treaties, so if, so what that means is, if you're going to bring a new product to the market or a new chemical or something, you cannot use it until you've. If there might be a risk of it causing harm, because this is the opposite of the way it's done in the states, where you can use that chemical and then you have to prove harm legally in a court for it to be withdrawn. So you know we take this precautionary approach. Now that will be a similar battle in terms of whether we stick with the EU standards yeah. or we go for US standards, and we're fighting very hard to make sure that we retain the precautionary principle, not just on environmental stuff, but also drug policy yeah. or yeah. any any sort of. Um, um, any sort of policy that might be about public health, really.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's important. I think
0: you're not convinced by Michael Gove's conversion to greenery, are you? <laughs> 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 That's a hollow. <laughs> <style>. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah.
3: Um, m- well, you know, I just wonder what's really inside Michael Gove. I feel there's a sort of empty <laughs> space there, and you could pour anything in. Really, I don't know about other people. I've not met him personally, but. Uh, you know, the, the, But he's also a very clever guy. So he's now come out, somebody's poured in all this stuff around you know, ecological safety and uh, precautionary principle and stuff, and he's now spouting all that in a really educated, intelligent way. The truth is I'm not sure it, it connects to any central part of his mm-hmm. being where he really believes it. So why wouldn't he be saying something else next week? So anyway, you know, the policy as far as Greens are concerned is bank what we've actually been offered. I mean, a certain amount of progress on plastics, the ivory ban... Things like that. And then, you know, and then keep putting pressure on him. There's been quite an interesting dynamic between Michael Gove and Franz Timmermans, who's one of the key commissioners, um, where they've sort of got into a race to the top, uh, especially over plastics. And um, Michael Gove said he was going to phase out plastic straws. And so Timmermans tweeted back to him, you know, I'm ahead of you on that, Michael, and then use the hashtag EU doesn't suck, which I think. <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's quite interesting the way the the kind of hard-right Brexit press has embraced the whole plastics and plastic bags thing, almost as a way to just get a change from Brexit on the front page every day. Yeah, but this
3: is like the Daily Mail, isn't it? Trash the environment, but then focus really hard on some, you know, deer that got wounded in the the New Forest or something. Paul Dacre's estate, yes. Exactly. By Paul Dacre. Yeah, exactly. We really care about that little deer, and we ignore the fact that those massive corporations are trashing everything in sight. So I, I fear it's a little bit like that.
0: Yeah. If we leave the EU, we keep saying that, if, we're, we're, we're oh, not yeah, saying we're, we're sticking with I wouldn't with have
3: if. come here if you hadn't used that word. We're all if.
0: sticking with if. If we leave the EU, get your organic crystal ball out, what, where would you see the direct future direction of green politics here? I mean, we're going to have a completely realigned pair of major parties.
3: Do you know what? Whether we leave or whether we don't leave, I think we're in a massive constitutional crisis and... I think that that basically our democracy, kind of because we were the first in there, a little bit like, you know, our tube system and our sewage, sewage system have problems because we thought of it before everybody else. Our democracy is a little bit like that as well. Mm. We simply haven't invested in it. We haven't kept it up to date. So if we if we don't go ahead with Brexit, we're going to have to ask how we got into this unholy mess. If we do go ahead with Brexit, then we, the country's not going to suddenly return to a peaceful, unified place with sort of, you know, polite switching between two parties. There's, there's a huge amount of ferment and, and division out there, and so... So we we need to look at all the aspects of our constitution that don't work. And I've got a a top three list, in fact, Uh, uh uh, which are fair voting system. So the way you vote actually translates properly into power. Um, A written constitution... So you can't be, um, you know, so so you can't say, you know, well, can Theresa May do that? Oh, well, we don't know, because it's not written down anywhere to say she can't. She might be able to get away with it. And the third really important one is a properly democratic second chamber, because right now, you know, the Lords actually were far more effective on um, trying to, restrain the worst effects of Brexit than the commons, um, but they didn't really have the democratic authority to mm. push that through. Now, this is a exa- classic example of when, when you need a second chamber. So those would be my top three demands. Mm. And I think we shouldn't be saying if, we should be, we should be demanding these things now because this is, it's the failure of, uh, of our democratic institutions that's got us into this mess. We've got a great opportunity to argue for better ones.
2: Yeah. The, you know, the march the other day, It actually it was the first time I think I felt a little bit ho- hopeful. In yeah, that was the point of the last couple march. of years. Yeah. No, but in, in a very specific way, not in a not in a sort of th- this this disaster might be averted way, but actually in a genuinely positive mm. Mm. way, that you know maybe we come out of this with an appreciation of what the original idea behind the European mm-hmm. Union was and what it does offer to our lives. So y- you know. If the disaster is averted, maybe we will actually be better off than we were before in this sort of apathy. It's a time
3: of great mobilisation, and we can push that mobilisation in a good direction. I try and think of it as about like 1960, you know, when there was all that social repression, and we had the Lady Chatterley trial, and you know, homosexuality was illegal, and all those Mm. kinds of things. But just round the corner, you know, was the Profumo scandal, and you know, the sort of collapse of the Tory party again, and then the the fabulous 60s. So you know, (laughs) let's imagine that's where we're going, and let's make sure that is where we're going.
0: That's a very green thing to say. Bring back the 60s. I can't believe I
3: missed it. It's my life's tragedy.
0: <laughs> Molly, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been, it's been great. You may have noticed we haven't heard much from Roz for the past few minutes. That's because she had to nick off in the middle of the recording, but she'll be back for the roll call at the end of the show. So we're nearly at the end of the show, which means the Brexit time capsule. This is where we store the things that we're going to miss if we leave the EU and the things we might need if we're out on our own. Alexandreo, it is your debut as a regular on the show, so you get to choose what's going in the Brexit time capsule this week. Okay, so I'm
2: going to put a speech by Jacob (laughs) Rees-Mogg extolling the virtues of the British Empire standing apart from Europe because I just think it would be enormous fun to confuse future archaeologists, that's to the century from which the time <laughs> capsule came. <laughs> is it a
0: particular speech, what did it, is it, or just a general Any one? speech Anyone? by Jacob Reesman. Any bit of muggery. Anyway, right. Thank you for that, Alex. For our traditional European language clip, listener Anna Godolo has come up with the goods again, with this time a bit of Furlan, or f- Friulan, I can't even pronounce it. It is the language of the Friuli region of northeastern Italy. So check out these long vowels.
1: No, Albione
0: And that's the end of the show. Now tighten those headphones for "Demon Is a Monster"
2: by Corner Shop, our theme tune, and a roll call of our Patreon backers. It's hello and of haristo from me to David Mangali, Cathy Stephen, Jonathan Brooke, and Kilter
1: Proctor. And thanks from me to Fiona Coyle, Jonathan Hammond, Tito Baritu, what a great name, and Andrew Anderson.
0: And it's mercy BN from me, pronounced badly, to Tom Smith, Ronnell Wild, Richard Lawrence, and David. Just David. He's probably using his
2: Dexiu email account again.
0: We'll see you all again next week.
2: Rumainix was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison with Ross Taylor and me, Alex Andreu. Studio production was by Jack Claremont. Rumainix is a Podmasters production. Naista.